I titled this sermon, The Gospel Lived Out. And here's why. Look with me at verse 1. We'll dive in together. Paul tells Titus in Titus 2, verse 1, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. To teach what accords with sound doctrine. The NLT puts it like this. I found this helpful. Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Now, here's what this means. A right understanding of sound doctrine and a right understanding of wholesome teaching, really a right understanding of the gospel of Jesus, is a foundational pillar to leading a life that actually pleases God. Right doctrine, sound doctrine, church has to come first. The gospel has to come first. And we know this at Coastal. The gospel is the good news that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us that he redeemed us and ransomed us and reconciled us into our relationship with our creator. And because we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, we've been declared righteous by God and we now have fellowship with God. And then and only then are we freed up to live in holiness and righteousness. That order is really critical for us to understand. And it's why Paul tells Titus to make sure that the church's doctrine is in order. Make sure they get the gospel right before he starts getting practical with their lives. And that's how we have to start this morning. We have to understand as a church that we don't live righteously to earn favor with God. We live in holiness and righteousness because we've already found favor with God through the person of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Let's get interactive. I'm going to work on this. It's really important that we have that foundation. So this morning, that's our starting point. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. So in the rest of this passage, Paul tells us what accords with sound doctrine, what the gospel lived out looks like. And if you're reading ahead in Titus 2, you'll see this. There are some culturally loaded statements in this passage. We see here God's design for gender roles and how he's created men and women to work together, to disciple each other so that the church is built up. And it's a really a beautiful, incredible picture, but it's also really countercultural and really easily misunderstood. So here's how I want to structure our time to give us some theological handles on how to approach a text like Titus 2 verses 2 through 10. I want to offer us four foundational truths from the scriptures that I want you to keep in mind, that'll really just set the tone for us as we walk through Titus 2. You'll have these in your notes. And then after we cover four foundational passages from the scriptures, we'll then pull out some application for the rest of this passage. So foundational truth number one, you have this in your notes. Men and women are created equal in value and distinct in role. Men and women are created equal in value and distinct in role. We see this in Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. According to the scriptures, men and women are both created in the image of God, which makes human beings unique over every other created species on earth. We didn't evolve from anything. We are the imago Dei, which means image of God. And this is true church of both men and women, which means that both genders, both sexes have equal value, equal worth and equal significance. One gender is not better than the other and one gender is not more or less precious to God. We also see that while both genders are created equal in value, they are different and distinct in role. And as Christians, we celebrate that. 
The Bible is clear. God has given men the primary responsibility of leading their homes. The Bible is also clear that God has given men the primary responsibility of leading the church. At Coastal, we hold to this firmly. We believe that the office of pastor and elder and overseer, we covered this last week, is reserved for men. There's no compromise on this because this is the pattern and prescription we see in the New Testament. All right, foundational truth number two. Sin has distorted the relationship between men and women. Have this in your notes. Sin has distorted the relationship between men and women. We know that soon after human beings were created in Genesis 1, sin entered the picture. Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and therefore ushered in the fall of mankind into sin, which distorted the good relationships that men and women were designed to have with each other. Genesis 3.16 says this about the relationship between Adam and Eve and really every other man and woman after them. Speaking to Eve, God says this in Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This gives us a picture of the problems that sin has caused. It's part of the curse of sin, which once was a good relationship between the sexes, is now one that is riddled with conflict and pride and a lack of submission on both sides. Church, sin is the reason why marriage is hard. And it's the reason why things like sexual and physical abuse happen. And it's the reason why we see sexual activity outside of marriage. All right, foundational truth number three, and here's what gets real good for us. Redemption through the person and work of Jesus aims at removing the distortions introduced by sin. Redemption through Jesus aims at removing the distortions introduced by sin. Jesus came as the curse breaker. In Genesis chapter three, he was introduced as the one who will bruise and crush the head of the tempter, the one who tempted Eve. And then through Jesus, the relationship between men and women can be made whole. It's why we see Paul use the language of brother and sister in the church. We still certainly have the ability to sin and we're wise, I think, to set loving boundaries in place, but the gospel aims at bringing reconciliation where there's conflict. And that's certainly true here. This leads us to foundational statement number four. In the church, men and women are one in Christ and united in mission. In the church, men and women are one in Christ and united in mission. Galatians chapter three, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So I want us to see this, all the benefits and the blessing that Christ brings, he brings to both men and women. Both men and women are co-heirs with Christ. We are one together in Christ and united in mission for Christ. Here's what I mean by that. We live in a world right now with urgent need. Like on planet Earth today, there are 2.6 billion people who have never even heard the name of Jesus. We as a church, partner with like-minded churches in Ukraine, in Thailand, in Jordan, in Puerto Rico, all to partner with gospel-centered churches and to make disciples. And that's just internationally. In our city, in Williamsburg, there are a myriad of ways to care for the sick, for the poor, for orphans and widows in their distress. Here's my point, church. The need of the world around us is so vast that every Christian 
man or woman, has plenty of room to walk in their gifting and to serve Christ in a God-glorifying way. Everyone has a ministry. No one is limited by God's good design. All right, those are four foundational truths. Keep these in mind because I want them to kind of undergird our time as we walk through the rest of Titus 2. Let's dive back in, Titus 2. Remember what Paul's saying, Titus teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, the rest of this passage is really going to help us bring this home, and it's going to be super practical as Paul walks through our roles as different groups of people in the church. Let's look back at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, let me first address probably the most obvious and most sensitive question in the room. What is an older man? Like, how does the Bible define, praise God, brother, securing your identity. No, in Bible times, an older man was someone who hit from the senior tees. Um, That was a bad joke. No, older men, we actually see in the scriptures, 1 Timothy talks about older men and older women, and he uses the age of about 60 as his delineation point. He's talking about older widows, and he uses 60. Now, to be clear, as your pastor, I'm not calling you old if you are 60 or over. That's between you and the Lord. But let me say this, and I think this applies to older men and older women too. There is a reason why Paul tells Titus, a young pastor, to start by exhorting and instructing the older saints in his congregation first. It's because older men and older women are some of the most critically important people in the life of the local church. God's word has a ton to say about getting older and the crucial ministry that older brothers and sisters have in the church. Psalm 71 verses 17 and 18 put it this way. Oh God, for my youth you have taught me, and still I proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Listen, the ones who can best proclaim the might and power of the Lord are the ones who have walked with him the longest. The ones who can best proclaim the faithfulness of God are the ones who have seen God come through time and time again. And so if you're an older saint in this room this morning, know this, in Williamsburg, we need you. We need you as a part of this local church. An older saint who has walked a long time in the path of righteousness is a treasure to the church, a treasure of wisdom, a treasure of experience, a treasure of understanding, a valuable model and resource to younger believers. I've seen this firsthand. Amy and I, in our first year of marriage at a previous church, we joined a small group, a couple small group, and in that small group, we were probably the youngest people in that group by about 20 years. And... I praise God for that time because those older brothers and sisters who had teenagers, some of them had grandkids, walked us through our first year of marriage, our second year of marriage. We had our daughter. They walked us through the transition of how to become parents. We didn't have any money. Older brothers and sisters usually have money. They bought us a stroller and everything we could ever need. We were blessed abundantly by that fellowship. The wisdom that we had could be found nowhere else in people our own age. Listen, college students, we're going to be spending a lot of time at William & Mary this fall. We really want to come alongside other churches and reach your school with the gospel. We want to equip you to reach your school with the gospel. But listen, one of the best things about college is also kind of a downside. You're in this bubble of 18 to 22-year-olds all the time. 
And you go to class with them, you eat with them, you live with them, play sports with them. I know we have our football team, our volleyball team here. You're around these people all the time. Listen, one of the most beautiful things about a local church is you get intergenerational fellowship, which if you're in college is a huge resource to you. So all that to say, I praise God as your pastor for older brothers and sisters in this congregation. All right, here's what I specifically want older men to see. Letter A. The necessity of endurance. The necessity of endurance. Look at verse two again. Older men are exhorted to remain sound in steadfastness, or in other words, to prioritize endurance. To remain steadfast is to endure. And here's why I think the Bible offers this word, particularly for older men. It can be easy after walking with God for decades and then looking around at what is a relatively younger church to think they don't need me. I've served my time. It can be easy to think that there is a retirement age for participation in the local church or even in your own walk with the Lord. I've heard this before from older brothers in Christ about their Bible reading. I've heard guys say, I've read it all before. I've heard it all a hundred times. I've heard it all preached a hundred times. There's nothing new for me. Older brothers, may it never be said of the men in our church. May that never be said. The need for endurance in service in the church and outside the four walls of the church and the need for personal holiness is too great. I mean, look at the expectation here from verse two. You are to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. This means level-headed, wise, full of discernment. You're called to be dignified, which means reverence, literally worthy of respect. Self-controlled. John MacArthur, writing about older men and self-control, put it this way. Older men should have the discernment, discretion, and judgment of walking with God for many years. They control their physical passions, they reject worldly standards, and they resist worldly attractions. I love that line from MacArthur about resisting worldly attractions. What is attractive to you right now, older brother? What captivates your heart, older man? Is it the trinkets of this world or the treasures of heaven? The Bible's clear. There is a reward coming, a real reward coming for decades of faithfulness of walking with Jesus, but that reward is not found in this life. Hebrews 10, 36 says this, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Older brothers, you have need of endurance. All right, let's keep reading. Verse three. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women. Now, I'll pick back up with younger women in a second here for the rest of verse four, but I want to pause first. Older women, we see, letter B, the urgency of example. For older women, the urgency of example. Now, Paul uses the term likewise, which tells us that everything he just said about older men also applies to older women. But then he adds, women must be reverent. They can't be spreading lies or gossiping, and they can't be slaves to wine. Now, I'm going to meddle here just for a second with fear and trembling as your young pastor. If you find that most of your conversations with your friends revolve around other people, or that you've gotten to a point where subconsciously, Every night you are needing or craving a couple drinks just to relax, then 
spend some time considering and meditating over Titus 2.3. Listen, alcohol and conversation topics are not problems in and of themselves. So don't mishear me, but they can reveal deeper patterns and practices in our lives that do not honor Christ. How do I know this? It was a problem in the church in Crete. And if left unchecked, it can so easily become a problem in the church in Williamsburg. Now, this is so important to older women because the Bible makes it clear older women have a special calling to teach and to set an example for younger women in the church. Verses 3 and 4 say this, teach what is good and train the young women. And so I can't overstate this need, older women at Coastal, your teaching ministry to young wives, to young moms, to young single women in the church is absolutely vital to the health of this body of believers. Because when young women look at the examples of our culture today, they are bombarded by hyper-feminism and materialism and a society that so badly distorts God's good design for gender roles that a woman who wants to love her husband, children, and stay at home is thought of as outdated and repressive. That's where we are. And so older godly women, our younger women need your teaching and they need your example. So this is my invitation for you. Impose yourself. Seriously, impose yourself. Tap a young mom on the shoulder. Tap a young wife on the shoulder. Grab a single woman in our congregation and open up your home to her. Show her plenty of grace as she navigates being a woman in 2023. Provide plenty of coffee. Make the young women at this church your ministry. All right, younger women, let's pick it back up in verse four. Bible says this, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Letter C, in Paul's word to younger women, we see an emphasis on the glory of the home. The glory of the home. Now, I want to bring some context back in here and remind us of why Paul's writing this letter. Paul wrote to Titus to address some specific problems going on in the early church in Crete. He wanted Titus to help set the church in Crete in order. We've covered that. Now, Titus is just 46 verses. It's real short. Now, here's why that's important. Paul is not trying, Coastal, to be exhaustive or comprehensive in his instruction here. He's actually pretty brief. For example, he doesn't address singleness at all in this passage, even though he's addressed singleness extensively elsewhere, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He knew and we know that single brothers and sisters absolutely have a role to play in the church, that they are invaluable to the church. What does this mean? It means that for some of us, we'll have to work extra hard this morning to apply what God's word is saying, especially if the particular text that we're looking at doesn't address our exact situation. Now, let me give you two examples of what I mean. And the second one, I promise, will lead us back to young women. But first, in verse 9, Paul addresses bondservants really slaves. And he exhorts them to work honestly and to live faithfully. Now, in these 46 verses, Paul's not taking the time here to wage war against the institution of slavery, an institution that is clearly wicked and clearly wrong. No, he's offering general principles for building up the church. He's not concerned in this passage with addressing everything. We see the second example of this in his exhortation to young women. Look at verse 5. 
This is the verse I had questions about. It says that young women are to be working at home. Now, to be clear, I don't think that Titus 2.5 is a blanket ban on women working outside of the home. Again, Paul's not writing dogmatically here, and there's too much scripture elsewhere that supports the idea of women making meaningful, professional contributions to society outside of their homes. Think about Priscilla in the book of Acts. She was a tent maker with her husband. Lydia in the book of Acts was a seller of purple goods. And in Proverbs 31, 16, we see that the godly woman considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. Now, There are many young moms and young wives in this church that will work outside the home and glorify God in doing so. But here's where the scripture's guidance to young women comes into play. And I do think it's important to do some healthy wrestling with this text. Young women, your career outside the home does not replace your God-given calling inside the home. Like there is a beautiful a particular God-given glory in the ministry of loving your husbands and children and making your home. And it's not easy. Verse four says that women need to be trained to love their husbands, which honestly, guys, I think that says more about us than it says about our wives. Like, How much training does it take to love you? I think there's a word for us in that. Our goal as young men married to these young women, which we'll discuss more here in a second, should be to live in such a way that our wives feel loved and supported and cared for. So much so that if we're really walking in Ephesians 5, which says that men ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church, then when we see wives submit or be subject to their husbands, that submission should be joyful and easy. When, and here's the theological word, when complementarianism is played out rightly, it's a beautiful picture of the love that Christ has for his church and the picture of how the church submits and loves Christ. I think we see in this text, there is a particular glory reserved for young women in the ministry of their homes. Finally, verse six, Paul's word to young men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. I actually love this. Like everyone else gets these rich paragraphs full of theological exhortation. Then in verse six, Paul looks at the young guys and just says, get it together. Like, I think there's something that we can take away here. It's almost like Paul is fed up or just needs to summarize everything to the young men. Young men, we know this. I'm a young man, have plenty of issues. And our word from Titus is be self-controlled, have mastery over self. And so this is letter D, younger men, the discipline of self-control. Now, I think that we're living in a relatively unique age. And I'm also aware that probably every pastor of all time has probably said we're living in a unique age. But I think there are things that are unique about where we are right now as a culture. More than ever, Young men are returning to their homes after college, their parents' homes after college. Or more than ever, young men aren't leaving their parents' homes after high school. Sexual immorality, pornography, worldliness is a click away, two seconds away on our smartphones. The statistics on video game usage, social media addiction, even dating, all those statistics about young men are all discouraging. I read an article this week in the Washington Post called Men Are Lost. 
that argued that this generation of men have few role models and even fewer ambitions. And I'll tell you why. All of this is because our culture has so badly blurred gender lines and gender roles that nobody even knows what men are supposed to be anymore or what they're supposed to look like. Brothers, in the midst of this, the scriptures urge the young men to be self-controlled, disciplined, in every area of our lives. As 1 Corinthians 16, 13 puts it, we are to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, to act like men and be strong. What does this mean, brothers, for the young men in this church? It means that the men in this church are called to be servant-hearted, sacrificial husbands, men who would joyfully and willingly lay down their lives for their wives. We're called to be intentional, engaged fathers who take seriously the call to raise up our kids in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And in our singleness, younger brothers, in your singleness, you are called to prioritize godliness and purity, to walk with a confidence that only comes from having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then, young guys, if you have that confidence, ask her out. Ask her out because that confidence will be incredibly attractive to the younger godly women at this church. Amen? Amen. All right. Younger men, we are called to be self-controlled. Let me wrap up with this. I'll invite the band back up. Um, and we'll close in worship. You guys can come on up. I want to I wanna say this because I know this text has been super, super heavy on application. Like it, Again, we all have a role to play at this church. God has designed, really given us his order. That's what we're walking through Titus 4. Titus 1, last week we saw elders. This week we saw everyone's role. We'll continue to see God's picture of the church in order, God's good design for the church. But after a sermon like this, I get it, right? I want to give you the why, because the why really matters. I don't want you walking away thinking, okay, here's something I have to do. Remember, we have to get the doctrine right first. We have to get the gospel right first. That's why Paul says, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. If our doctrine isn't right, our performance doesn't matter. We have to know we are secure in Christ, not because of what we do, as Pastor Hunter was just praying, but because of what Christ has done. So that's the foundation. What is the why? Why does this matter? Look with me at the last part of verse 10. I think Paul gives us a clue. So that in everything, they or we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This verse is communicating something that I think is real significant. When we as a church are committed to opening up the word of God, to looking at our God-given role for our lives, and saying, God, I'm going to submit my life to it, I'm going to obey it, then we literally adorn the doctrine of the gospel. And to adorn literally means to make something beautiful. And guys, I just want to be real honest. Like, I think in, in 21st century America, the doctrine of our culture has gotten really confusing. It's gotten real confusing. And enter in God's design for gender roles for men and women in and outside of the home, for men and women working in harmony and partnership in the church, also that the name of Christ would be magnified and that the church would be built up and that people would see Jesus. When we walk in that, when we submit our lives to God's ordained roles for our lives, the doctrine of God is made beautiful. And so that's my challenge. Like the Holy Spirit is the one who will apply 
Titus 2, 1 through 10. I think I know that I have something to work on from Titus 2, 1 through 10. I'm trusting that many of us do. For some of us, maybe it's an action step. For some of us, maybe it's a heart posture, a mindset shift. But here's my hope for our churches. We're really just getting off the ground. I would love to see us be a people that adorn the doctrine of Jesus Christ so that people would look at our church, that they would look at Christians and say, in a culture marked by confusion and discord, they have something that we don't. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll stand and sing. Father, we come before you this morning grateful for a word of application, Lord. I know that as a preacher, even my own bent is to love theology, to study theology. But as Paul reminds us in this word from Titus 2, that it's not just about teaching doctrine, it's about teaching what accords with sound doctrine. If how we live our lives doesn't match up with what we say we believe, then our doctrine is meaningless. So Father, I pray for this church right now. I pray for my own heart right now, God, that as as we look at our roles, our God-given roles from the scriptures, that we would be a humble enough people to say, yes, Lord, I'll do it. God, whatever you say for me, whatever you have for me, you are God. You're a creator. I'm not. I am the clay. We are the clay. God, you are the potter and your ideas are good. Your design is perfect. And so, Father, I pray that as a church, we would adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, and how we live our lives. I pray for our older men. I pray, God, that they would see the need for discipleship here at our church. They would be mentors to young guys. They'd be able to say, 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That they would be men of purity, of wisdom, of reverence, God, so that Me, myself as a young pastor, would be able to look up to some of the older brothers in our congregation and say, yes, I want to be like that guy. I want to be like him. I want to raise my family like him. I want to raise and love my grandkids like he does. God, I thank you for that older brother in our congregation. I thank you for the older women here at Coastal Church. God, you have been so gracious to us, even already in week two as a new church, to provide some godly, incredible role models in our older women. Women who are kind and loving. Women who model submissiveness and godliness towards their husbands. Women who love their families well. Women who glorify God in their jobs outside of the home and glorify God in their jobs inside the home. God, I'm so thankful for our older women. God, your grace in them. I pray right now for Titus 2 women to raise up out of Coastal Church to be mentors and examples because our young women need the example of Titus 2 women to raise up Titus to women in this church, oh God. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would do that. I pray, God, for our young women, that they would know that there is glory in what they're doing right now, that motherhood is not martyrdom, that there is a beautiful design in the calling that you have for so many of them. And that, God, you have ordained a role for them, not only in their homes and outside the homes, but in this local church, that what they're doing in this church matters. God, it's so much more than kids ministry or the welcome team. God, I pray that you would comfort and encourage our young women this morning, that they matter, that you see them, God, and that there's a reward coming for faithfulness. And then, God, I pray for our young men. I pray for our young men, God, that we would be men who are self-controlled, that we would reject the cultural mandate of confusion, of 
getting out there and being crazy, but we would be men of discipline, men of zeal for Jesus Christ, men who see the urgency of the mission that you set before us, and men who are willing to open up the scriptures, conform our lives to the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit and say, yes, Lord, help me. I want to be used for your glory. And so God, I'm thankful for this local church, thankful for the chance to study the word today. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that as you've been doing for the last couple years here in Williamsburg, that you would build your church according to your design. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.